Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host. Supremacy King 2. I feel like every episode they're announcing a new port of Civ 6 onto a different platform. So I, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if that April Fool's joke of Civ 6 on the iWatch or Apple Watch or whatever actually does come true. <laughs> so welcome to Polycast 325. I'm Makalu as usual. Uh, with me, of course, uh, Dan Q. I see you seeing me. Me and team. I conquered another province, now trading in salt. You always trade in salt. Of course. Uh, <laughs> Mega Bears fan. Looking for the YouTube stream. Where's the YouTube stream? Very well hidden, apparently, now, because YouTube hates live streaming, apparently. And our guest today, Supremacy King 2. Hi. Happy to be on the show. Civilization 6 on the Fitbit. Nice. That would be a tight squeeze. Play while you run. All right, guys. Only 50 more steps to a granary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you joke, but I would not be surprised if something like that happened at some point in the future. Oh, I'm sorry. You took 55 steps and you didn't change production. That's five lost steps. Sorry. Aw, man. Someone at Fraxis is rapidly oh, scribbling funny. down notes. <laughs> Run up and down the stairs three We're times to avoid losing your forge in the fire, you scrub. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it might work if Run Zombies Run works for people. I mean. I uh, guess. <laughs> no, no. That's step up in order to move into the forest at Hex, not step down. Oh, come on. Press F to pay your <laughs> To exit the game, smash your device. <laughs> First district in Concord, undeveloped city. This one started by my clan. Basically asking, just, what do you put in an undeveloped city if you take it from the enemy? Let's see. Be going campus as first district in almost all cities. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I guess it depends. I don't think there's a one right answer here. And scrolling through the thread, I see several votes for trade stuff, either going for the market or harbor they're building. But, hmm... I would say it, it depends. Like if you're going for science, you probably do want to get a campus in there pretty quickly. If you're just taking some cities so you can increase your output. But if you're going for like conquest or whatever, you're just trying to conquer everybody. I think trade routes can make sense. I think I usually just raise them. Yeah. Well, okay. On the assumption you've got a city that you have yeah. conquered and you're keeping it. Yeah, let's say that you're keeping it, and let's say that <laughs> it's not placed in a terrible location or any other reason you would raise it. Uh, this is becoming uh, increasingly hypothetical. Well, okay, but I mean, <laughs> this, yeah, you no, have to it. have some context in order to answer this question, because otherwise the answer is just going to be, it depends. And while that's yeah. probably the most correct response, it's not very useful. <laughs> I'd say probably vast majority of times, if I'm going to keep the city, it would probably be a commercial hub or a harbor. And a, a campus would probably be a close second. Unless it's like a city that I'm using as like a staging point for attacking other cities belonging to that civ, in which case I might go with like an encampment for the extra bombardment. Yeah. If I can get it out quick enough. And every but, once uh, in a while, it's a future production city or something, too. But eh, yeah, it's usually commercial hover campus, I would imagine. What about an industrial zone for the production? Production is so important in civilization. 
Well, that's kind of what I was going for, but they kind of heavy handed the industrial zone a bit. So like you still make them, but you don't make nearly as many as you did in vanilla, like early release. That's also going to depend on what adjacency bonuses are available. If I can't build any mines to get adjacency bonuses for that industrial hub, then it's probably not going to be all that great. Yeah. But the commercial hub always gives you a trade route, regardless of, well, with the market, regardless of your adjacency bonuses. So Yeah, that's what it is for me, too. When it comes down to an adjacency bonus, if the AI hasn't placed a particular district down yet, that would heavily benefit from that, because I'm probably not going to be relying on a conquered city, certainly not any time in the near future, for my science output or for my industrial output, because that's going to have to require me to build the district, and I'm going to have to construct those buildings in that district, whereas, as has been saying with the commercial hub or the harbor, you get the market in the commercial hub, or the lighthouse in the harbor, and now you have a trade route, and that trade route is not dependent on that city. That trade route, I mean, we kind of touched on this in the past, actually, in recent episodes, that you can go and have that trade route come from any city within your empire whatsoever, and maybe that's all that's good for that undeveloped city is to get to that commercial hub or harbor. But if the city is that undeveloped, there's probably some resources, i.e. jungle and or forest that you can chop, or maybe there's a mine that you can, you know, I can emphasize a little bit on your hammer production so you can get that commercial hub or harbor. And then that money can just translate into whatever it is that you want to do, which could be, hey, I want to go and (laughs) purchase a workshop in the industrial zones in my other cities. I want to purchase libraries and universities to push out my science. I've got my theater district. I'm going for a culture victory. It would be nice to be able to buy some museums, for example. So oftentimes, it really depends. Again, it's been said in the developed city. If it's early to mid-game, then I might actually see that city coming into its own. And I could say, okay, it's early enough. I'm willing to develop this as another science-based city or a culture-based city. But if the city is itself undeveloped, then it's kind of, here's your ticket to ride, and the ticket to ride to the Empire is to help what it is that I'm already doing, and when it comes to money, it's just something that can be applied very easily to almost anything else in the game, and we've talked just about how powerful money is in the future, so... Although I will give a special note to what uh, Jason said with regards to the encampment, because if it is that border city and I'm feeling like there's a chance that the AI might take it back, well, I'm not talking about loyalty here, but I want that added defense that hold on to it, then maybe, maybe, but it's probably like half of the time or more going to be a commercial hub or a harbor, and it might not even be the first thing that I'm building. Probably the first thing that I'm going to be building in the city is like walls, for example, if I want to be keeping that city. But when it comes to a district, yeah, more often than not, give me the money. Show me the money. If loyalty and or amenity is going to be a problem, I might even plop a uh, entertainment complex down so that I can run bread and circuses in order to hold that city's loyalty and maybe even apply pressure out towards the, uh, the enemy cities. I do have a question, though, because I don't think I've ever had this happen to me. If you have a, uh, a commercial hub with a market and that market and or commercial hub is pillaged, do you, does your trade route capacity go down by one? The only time it would become an issue is if whatever trade route you're currently using that commercial hub or harbor for, if it comes up for renewal before you're able to repair it, then you're going to get stuck. But you're not going to lose the trade route instantly if the commercial hub or harbor gets pillaged and that's where the trade route was coming from. Ah, okay. Because, yeah, another big factor is, is going to be whether or not I'm still at war with the Civ that I conquered the city from and whether or not I think there's a chance they might take it back. Because if they're going to take it back, I'm probably not going to invest in a district other than an encampment. 
And I'm certainly not going to invest in a commercial hub and a trade route only to have that get recaptured or pillaged and then lose that, not only the production that went into the commercial hub in the market, but also the production that went into the trader unit. And I think the first district in the conquered undeveloped city could also apply to a city-state even, but more often than not, I think, yes, we are talking about an enemy civilization and a city that they controlled. Yeah. User Absolution posted, he said, what if instead of just barbarians, we could have different cultures and factions attacking our civilizations? And he has some pretty good ideas of basically how to diversify barbarians, make them more unique. And I actually really like this idea because I feel like barbarians are kind of underdeveloped feature in civilization. Past civilization games have basically just given us like that simple threat that just attacks the player in the early game. I always felt like you could do a lot more with barbarians. Me personally, I would almost like them to be like minor civs, kind of. Maybe have some like limited diplomacy with them. But I think just making them different, maybe giving them some unique abilities would definitely spice up that early game. Yeah, I was never really fond of the idea of the barbarians being more like this kind of force of nature kind of thing, rather than being treated as actual people who you could talk to and reason with. I mean, at the very least, maybe bribe them to not attack your cities because, you know, that's usually what they would want anyway. But yeah, the idea of replacing them with nomadic tribes that are basically just like little city states, but without a city, I think would be a cool idea, especially if they also complemented that with having actual genuine nomadic civilizations. So civs like the Mongolians and the Huns and the Scythians and the Cree actually were like nomadic and didn't necessarily have stationary cities. Maybe they had moving cities, kind of like the aquatic cities in Beyond Earth. Or maybe, you know, they were kind of like a Total War Attila had um, a horde mechanic where you basically raise all your own cities and you like convert them to like a little army kind of thing that then moves along the board. And then you can take other cities and you can resettle if you want. Ideas like that, I think, could be really good in the game. And it would be a great way to more accurately represent a lot of the more diverse cultures rather than trying to pretend that every culture that's ever existed basically makes European-style cities. And I do also like the idea of separating them by, like, land tribes and more seafaring tribes. You know, like, if the Vikings are not included as a sieve, then make them some kind of seafaring barbarian tribes. I could also see maybe the idea of pirates, like Age of Sail, Pirates of the Caribbean kind of things. Yeah, you'd be nodding, but I'm nodding along with you on that one, because if you stop and you think about it, a bunch of naval guys working with a bunch of people on land with some other people is not so much how the barbarians, air quotes, or this minor tribes type thing was. They usually had something they specialized in. Yeah, and they can have little diplomacy things where, you know, maybe these nomadic tribes move around the map and maybe you can offer to let them temporarily settle in your territory. And maybe that gives like you some small benefits extra population in your cities for a a temporary period or they just automatically work some tiles for you or generate revenue or something like that or you can kick them out if you want maybe there's also like some negative effect maybe they apply like negative loyalty in your cities or something while they're there so there's like a little bit of a pro and con balancing act and yeah like if with the naval guys if you had the pirates or something if you offered them safe passage through they wouldn't attack your shipping but they'd still attack the rival civs shipping right Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for interesting, again, not only just representing more diverse cultures, uh, which definitely seems to have been a goal of Civ 5 and Civ 6, 
And I feel like something like this would be a natural extension of that, but also providing some new and interesting strategies for the player and also a little bit more kind of player versus board challenge and scenarios, you know, rather than just the other sieves who are competing with you directly being the sole source of challenge, having these little tribes and city states and pirates and stuff like that on the board to deal with gives you more that you have to deal with that aren't just the other sieves who are competing for the same victories. Because they'd be in different places and across the map, everybody would have to deal with it. So it's not one of those things that's going to unbalance it for somebody, especially if you've got those diplomatic options. Right. And as I think about diplomatic options, the only civilization title to date that had anything resembling that was not even mainline Civ, but Civilization Revolution, where in Civilization Revolution, there were three different types of barbarians, but that was just an aesthetics thing. Each one of them had a leader. Each one of these three barbarian groups had a leader, but all this leader would do would be to talk to you, to talk trash to you. In some cases, actually literally telling you they like to live in trash. (laughs) (laughs) they would just say, oh, you captured my favorite village, and they decided to join your civilization. Well, that's fine. I didn't like them anyway. I've got lots of other villages on the map. But there was no way for you to interact with them. You would receive messages, but you couldn't send anything back. You couldn't reason with them. You couldn't influence them. In the end, it came down to squashing them just like you had in previous civilization titles. The only mainline Civ variation that we had a little bit of flavor was in Civilization 4 when you had barbarian animals on the map and it's like oh crap my worker just got eaten by a lion but <laughs> oh I hated that I hated that yeah. I, I wouldn't mind that coming back especially if you could uh, capture the animals and put them in zoos and stuff like that that'd be a cool feature <laughs> panthers were the worst and the bears because bears are basically archers without a first strike those are bad yeah the bears were nasty Speaking of that, Civ 4 had a decent mechanic for this, and it just never used it in normal games, the minor Civs mechanic. They were basically nations with barbarian status. They started war with everybody. You could make peace with them, but you couldn't do normal proper diplomacy with them. They could have been given unique stuff, too, with enough editing. But in the base game, again, a randomly generated map, you would never get them. But (laughs) that that was something Civ 4 actually had in it. And I think it used that mechanic in a few of its uh, scenarios that it came with and some of the expansions. That that was never part of the base game, and it could have been. It would have been interesting. Yeah, definitely. There was a reply to the thread from Grey Wolf in favor of what Absolution was saying, but to his own thread from earlier, where he talks about different options that really start to try to flesh out the diplomacy aspect, which is the real interesting thing that has not been tried, at least not to any, I would even say, meaningful extent. As Phil said, Civilization Four had the potential, but it didn't go anywhere, and it was very hidden, and even if you exposed it, it was still very limited. Yeah. Suggestions like, taunt them into invading you, which I thought was kind of interesting, which is if you like barbarian farming, this could make it a little better for you, and they may produce more units as well, so more farming. Well, he taunt them into invading you. I would think at some point that if you taunt them into invading you, first off, there's invasion and then there's invasion, right? It's, it's how many units are they going to send, when are they going to send them, and what configuration. And if they just keep sending wave after wave of the same unit to you and they keep getting slaughtered, then I would like there to be a little bit of intelligence in that respect. The barbarians would be like, okay, that invasion didn't work, but fine, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to try again. Pay a ransom to give you back a lost villager, settler, or great person. I mean, the thing right now is you can't, we can't actually capture great people in Civilization VI. They just magically get sent back to where they came from. Yeah. That would be nice that they could actually be captured and maybe not just to get back a lost villager, a settler, or a great person, but hey, the barbarians captured one of these people. I would like to be able to use them. What does the barbarian want? 
pay them to fight other nearby barbarians. And here's where you could get into, like Civilization Revolution had, where you had different degrees of barbarians, but it was only based on the land type. You had essentially cold area barbarians and the warmer area barbarians, but they wouldn't fight each other. They were only interested in fighting you, and there was nothing you could do, again, to stop that. Pay them to bully or invade a city-state. Bully a city-state? I am 100% in favor of this. This should have been suggested right from the beginning. I am totally in favor of this. Let's go. Uh, (laughs) uh, Pay them to invade a particular sieve. Wow. So here's your like mercenary army by proxy. Pay them to guard. Maybe there's an ancient ruin, archaeological site, natural wonder, a rare resource on a distant island that you want claim to, or maybe use some extra troops in your lands to defend against an invading sieve. Wow. Pay them to guard. Maybe that's something that you have to pay them on an ongoing basis. And as time goes on, they say, hey, we've been doing such a good job. No one has taken this ancient ruin that you're really interested in exploring. So you want us to continue to protect it, then you better go ahead and pay up. Give them units. Want them to do your dirty work, but they're looking a bit weak. Perhaps they would be more successful invading another civ if they had extra few units or want to make sure that they're strong enough to guard something, and you need not lift a finger. (laughs) Plus, it might make them like you better. (laughs) It, It might make them like you better. As I'm reading through this list from Grey Wolf, I'm starting to see how a contact with a barbarian could be on several stages. As kind of is suggested here, I want you to invade this civ. Okay, well, we're going to need money in order to get those units. Yeah, okay, well, here you go. Pay them to trade their explored map to you. Save you the trouble of sending scouts into areas that are full of barbarians. Bully them into paying you. Have a big army and no gold? This could be a little uh, way to get a little extra coin on the side. Pay for intelligence on another sieve, which I guess would be kind of tied to their exploration of the map. Warn them not to settle near you? Like, that even works for AI proper. I I don't know about that. Uh, (laughs) Although, if they listen... (laughs) Well, yeah, they might. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to not work. (laughs) Receive messages from barbarians, threatening you, warning you of an imminent invasion, or informing you of some nearby resource or natural wonder. Even this could be useful for you. I mean, certainly at this point, I'm not certain we would want to call them barbarians. I mean, it's a nice catch-all term for a minor sieve that is not a city-state, for example. I don't know. You could just be like Rome, where everything that's not you is barbarians. <laughs> and then Grey Wolf says, of course, there could continue to be some unfriendly barbarians that refuse any communication or diplomacy at all as well. Maybe these specific groups could be renamed as bandits, which makes sense that they only want to attack. But you could then pay other barbs to deal with them while you focus on building wonders or exploring the world. Right now in Civilization Six, and this comes up in the turncast games, I'm like, I, I want barbarians disabled. Why do I want Barbarians disabled? No, it's not because I dislike fun. It's because I dislike getting luck screwed, or someone else in the game getting luck screwed, where they're having to deal with Barbarians because, ah, crap, I happen to be near horses, and here comes the mounted units, and you spend the first 50 turns dealing with that, but not everyone is dealing with that. And there's no way to scale them down. So they're either really excessive at the beginning, which sets somebody back, or they really have no effect at all whatsoever, and so what's the point of even having them enabled? I miss in Civilization Four just, you know, like the Raging Barbarians, for example, or to make the Barbarians less. Since there's no slider and the way the mechanics are currently working, if we're going to go in and change how the mechanics are working for Barbarians in Civilization Six, which I think myself and a number of other people on this show have called for, guests and regular panelists otherwise, let's do it. Let's not only make them at least as competent uh, you know, at least make this mechanic as reasonable as it used to be in Civilization titles, and make it better. Does Civ Six even have a Raging Barbarians option? 
Nope, nope. Barbarians are on or off. The end. Yeah, it, I mean, Civ Six just by itself, the barbarians are practically the raging barbarians of the previous game. <laughs> I was going to say, it feels like it usually. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd go that far. We ought to actually be celebrating the fact that there is this mechanic because it gives us something to do. You know, maybe you are the only person on a continent with a really aggressive AI. And it's like, oh, what the heck am I supposed to do here? And maybe they catch you a little bit off guard and you're thinking, man, I should have been prepared for it. But maybe, just maybe, and it's going to cost you, but you might be able to negotiate something with a barbarian just for a few turns or something to give you a chance. You know, it's, it's something that would make it so that it felt like in the early game or the mid game or whatever, that there was this other variable that you have to take into account. And that variable can either be really good or it can be really bad. It can work against you, but it could also work for you. So you might actually say, yes, barbarians nearby. And I don't just mean for farming. Yes, barbarians nearby. I can use them, or at least try to negotiate some mercenaries. Try to get them to be a mercenary army. So maybe I just need to leave them alone. I'm not going to actively go out and try to clear their camps. Whereas if I'm the one that's going out and clearing their camps, and then I come up against an AI proper, and I'm like, hey, barbarians, can you help us? And they're like, um, are you kidding? Do you realize how many camps of ours you've cleared? <laughs> you know what? I think we're just going to go and fight you instead. And so those are the kind of decisions that would make this really, really interesting. One of the other things that it would, it would do is it would make barbarians relevant throughout the entire game, as opposed to them mm. basically being completely dealt with by, like, what, the medieval <laughs> era, maybe the Renaissance. There's, like, a few on little islands or whatever that you haven't found yet. But if they're actually treated like factions and you're dealing with diplomacy with them, then there's something to do besides just exterminate them which means they actually stay in the game for most of the game, if not all the game. The one downside that that would create is that you could end up in situations where you're at peace with every civilization and also at peace with all the barbarian factions. And then there's kind of just like nothing for you to do other than just build up in your cities and hit end turn. Because the one thing that the barbarians, as they currently function, do do for the game is make it so that there's always something for you to hypothetically be doing with your units. Even if you're at peace with all the civs, you can still be sending them out across the map to try to look for barbarian encampments and wipe them out, which wouldn't necessarily be the case if they were treated like actual factions, because, again, like I said, you could get into a situation where you're at peace with all of them, too, and now your military units are literally just sucking up maintenance costs and not even being able to be used for anything. My gosh, how often have we said on this show, particularly with Civilization VI, and it's two years since the game was out, and this is still the case, how much unclaimed land do we have? There is so much room for the barbarians to be, and so many places for the barbarians not just to sit and wait for you to come about, but for them to go and start exploring and establishing a base. And, I don't know, again, if left untouched, like we saw in Civilization I, Oh, there's a bunch of barbarian cities here. They started off as just a few camps here and there, but they were left to their own devices, and now they've taken over this spot because no one else was here. And now you get to kind of the mid and the later game, and they are a threat. If you're not settling those places because, again, I've already got oil. I don't need any more than the one source of oil. I've already got coal. I don't need any more coal. But hey, yeah, you're saying, Jason, there's something to have to do with your units because you either need to be constantly clearing them, you need to be spawn busting, you need to make the decision that, oh my gosh, it's better just to settle a city, you know, on this small island because it will keep the barbarians away. Or, fine, I'm going to pay the maintenance to park a battleship here to ensure that the barbarians do not spawn which could at some point get to the point where I've completely spawn-busted and now the barbarians have absolutely no effect at all. But at least it would get you to explore the map and go back to those places on the map. Have an active presence there. 
Oh, I, I usually like when they spawn later in the game because it gives me something to do with my uh, rangers and privateers. I'd love to go cruise the polar caps and recruit all those guys that are lurking up there. Oh, hey, look at my new army. Hi, guys. And another thing, too, that they could do is if they do settle or occupy space that has access to resources, maybe you can also trade with them. They can sell it to you. So you don't necessarily have to settle there to gain access to the resource. You can make a deal with the, the local natives to exchange for yeah. it. Just like in real life now, this resource is not valuable to you, but valuable to me. Here's some money, which is far below what the actual market price is, but it's a fortune to you. Yeah, and that uh, gives another reason to leave them on the map, maybe even yeah. protect them, because you want that, you know, access to that yes. relatively cheap and easy source of resources. Having your city-state allies protect those if they're giving you valuable resources. And it occurred to me another game, a Civ game, Colonization, had the Indian tribes, which I feel is kind of similar to what we've been talking about. You had these tribe camps, and they could like give you a specialist citizen, which was always really cool. You could, I think you could trade with them. Kind of similar to what we've been talking about. Yeah, they were kind of like a combination of barbarians and goody huts, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yes, exactly. And that's another thing that this idea could do, too, is, is we're talking about replacing the barbarians, but this could also be a sort of replacement for the goody hut mechanic, where you run into a tribal village, and it's not just a thing on the board that gives you a reward. Maybe that ends up being a tribe that's a faction to do diplomacy with. Wow, and, and now my mind is actually going beyond civilization, and I'm thinking of a different computer game altogether called The Seven Cities of Gold. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it or you play. Oh, I that game. It's like colonization. It is a colonization game, and you're trying to colonize the new world, but you would come across tribal villages, and you would enter that tribal village, and you would have to negotiate for goods, goods that you would need, to example, to continue to fight, and food, and, and other resources to help maintain your colonies. And if you walked into that village and you just started slaughtering people like you were violent, if you dared to go back, then that was asking for your life. Like you could end up losing the game if you got too violent with them because the other villages would also be in contact with each other nearby and you could develop a reputation. Like I've never been to this village before, but your reputation precedes you. And in that game, if you pissed off too many of the locals too quickly, you are not going to win. Just scaling and difficulties as well. So all of these things combined, yes, could make it so that the barbarians are meaningful throughout the entire game, that they're interactive, and that interaction can benefit you just as much as it can hurt you so long as you play your cards right, just like with city-states, only even more so. There's a part of me that's like 2K and Frax, so like, hmm, how much development time is that going to have? I wonder if we can get the Civ community. You can start a GoFundMe campaign so we can add this to the game. Well, <laughs> in the meantime, oh, Modcast. <laughs> yeah, it would definitely be something that would have to be, if not a full expansion, then new mechanic and an entirely new entry, uh, you know, Civ 7 kind of thing. Perhaps to sum up, just as Grey Wolf had titled his thread, Barbarians are people too. Until you kill them all. We did get some critical commentary. Uh, one came from, I believe this would be pronounced in exist, uh, saying... Please do more research on Civ 3 next time before talking about it in vague, broad strokes. Uh, I'm not 
sure exactly how hostile or passive-aggressive this is supposed to be, but uh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. The Civ Six concept of armies is ripped with changes straight out of Civ Three, a relatively fleshed-out espionage system compared to Civ Two, among other features. For a, quote, failure, it has an awful lot of extremely fleshed-out mods, visibly more than Civ Four and Five. And uh, Dan did respond to this, saying that we did mention some of these facts and that specifically that it did have a very robust modding community. And uh, I want to point out as well that I did have some positive things to say about Civ 3, including some mechanics and features in Civ 3 that I would like for Firaxis to revisit and flesh out a little more and bring back, uh, for example, the idea of colonies and being able to pillage wonders and uh, bombarding cities, actually doing damage to the city itself and to the population as well. Things like that are things that I liked about Civ 3 and that I would like to see come back. So yeah, the game was not a complete abject failure, not by a long shot. It was good enough that it led to creating a sequel. The game is terrible and nobody likes it, then they usually don't get sequels. Case in point, look at Master of Orion 3. There's no Master of Orion 4. There's a reboot. <laughs> they did that try came a out. reboot. Yeah, there's a reboot said, that came out a try. couple years ago that was okay. <laughs> kind of think of it as baby's first Space 4X because it was a very simplified game, you know, especially compared to something like Stellaris, which is absurdly complicated. But yeah, Civ 3 did not kill the Civilization franchise. So in that respect, it was definitely not a uh, failure. But we also did get some, some positive feedback. Extreme Gardens said that when you were talking about the resource copies providing more significance, I immediately thought of specialist slots in Civ Five, where you could have assigned people in the city to generate what that great people points, GPP, and yeah. a respective yield. Maybe setting coal oil into a building in the industrial zone changes its appearance and increases its yield. Forces go into industrial zone for production, so forth. And uh, you know, that's I've proposed ideas like this before, where I would talk about putting them on like buildings and stuff like that instead of on the um, districts. But it's kind of the same where, yeah, you actually have to take a looking at Civ 5, for instance, where you actually have a supply of uh, resources. I would have liked if you actually had to take a supply out in order to maintain your factories or your railroads or whatever. And then that it's not just required for you to build it, but it actually takes that out of your supply and you cannot use it for building units or whatever. So you actually had to make a decision between whether you wanted to use your resources for military applications or for domestic or economic ones. So uh, definitely a good idea. I definitely approve. And uh, we also got legalized freedom saying beyond Earth itself is great. And I will let the rest of you respond to that. It has some ideas that should have stayed with it, that should have been brought into future Civ games. There's some good there, yeah. quite a bit of good. <laughs> I mean, as much as we get angry at it sometimes, it's because there was potential there and things we liked, and it just didn't quite get to where we hoped it would. Yeah. And I would like to say that if you do disagree with Legalized Freedom, who says the, uh, the, the art and the atmosphere were all great. I think that the art and the atmosphere was kind of like the biggest place where Beyond Earth was lacking. The UI was just completely monochrome and very stale and it just completely lacked the personality that say for instance alpha centauri had that was always going to be a tough follow-up though oh yeah it would yeah be. everybody expecting alpha centauri too and this is something entirely different right and i do feel like rising tide did do a good job of i guess improving beyond us but yeah and i think i even posted something about how Beyond Earth was kind of caught between like two worlds and it could never make both worlds happy at the same time. You had the folks that wanted an Alpha Centauri 2 and it just wasn't going to really live up to that. And then you had folks that wanted like a Civilization 5 
and the game could never really do both at the same time. Yeah, it was too much like Civilization V for its own good, I feel. Again, I really like the idea of having the mobile cities. I think that would be great for the civilizations in the game that were historically nomadic, like I mentioned before, the Mongolians, the Huns, the Kree. Actually having civs that move across the map and don't just settle in one centralized location would definitely do a better job at uh, reflecting those individual cultures. And uh, the other feature that I really liked was the idea of the diplomatic capital, where you actually accumulated favor points with the uh, other civs that you could then use to convince them to do things for you instead of just having to bribe them with money. And then there was also the attached to that was the mechanic of the fear and respect, where instead of just having one diplomatic relationship with you, they either would like and respect you because you were friendly with them and cooperative with them, or they would fear you because you had a very powerful military and had threatening postures towards them. If they feared you enough, you could actually get them to give you things that they would not otherwise give you. That was a really good mechanic because I've personally I've found that the make a demand mechanic in both Civ 5 and Civ 6 is completely pointless. The AIs never give you anything that you demand of them, no matter how much more powerful you might be. And uh, Beyond Earth, Rising Tide actually made a mechanic for that where, yeah, if you had a certain threshold of fear with them, they would give you stuff if you threatened them. Yeah, I mean, I really love the diplomacy in Rising Tide. I really, really hope that Civilization 6 gets an expansion that really focuses on diplomacy. Because I do feel like that's one area that needs a lot of work. Episode 322 of Dan Q, Mega Bears Fan, Alpha Shard, Timothy001, and Ceiling Cat. Difficulty level in Civilization 6. DD is too easy, says a clue without, but if you added eight more difficulty levels, the game would still be too easy. There are many problems, but these include AI bonuses are heavily front-loaded, so once you overtake the AI, it can't catch up. And yes, AI referring to artificial intelligence in a single-player context. The AI therefore can't threaten you beyond the early game, doesn't really compete with you otherwise, and can't even threaten getting a victory before you, which would force you to try stopping the AI instead of just focusing on your own victory condition. Second, it is not hard to manage your empire, and indeed is relatively easy to optimize your empire and very strong to do. There are no consequences for spamming cities or campuses or for chopping all your resources. I'm not saying you should be punished for these strategies, but playing in an extreme way doesn't have any knock-on consequences which balance out the advantages of these strategies. This makes these strategies sort of boring. They don't create any interesting decisions, but all make them powerful because there is no downside. And third, nothing changes so you're never pulled off course. I'm not advocating natural disasters or random number generators, but just an observation. After an early land grab, your empire basically never faces any challenges beyond timing of swapping certain policy cards and maybe some limited competition for great people. The AI's poor use of naval and air may be part of this problem, as if the AI could use this to challenge you, and because you can't pre-build some naval and all air units, defending sea and air attacks would potentially force you to change plans. But fixing that would only fix part of the problem. I don't think nerfing chopping or Magnus or having a better AI is going to fix Civ's lack of challenge. The current lack of challenge is actually a more complex problem, which is compounded by Firaxis' decision to make all strategies viable and therefore not punish any particular types. To be clear, I don't think don't punish any specific playstyles is probably right, and don't punish wide is certainly right, but it limits the scope of the game to actually challenge players. This is not a topic 
that is unique to the show, as in we have not talked about this before, but the whole premise, instead of TLDR, this is TLDL, too long, didn't listen. Deity is too easy, but if you added eight more difficulty levels, the game would still be too easy. Number one, the AI is pretty dumb. Number two, easy to manage your empire. And three, beyond the early game, nothing changes. You lock into a particular set of steps, and you're on your way to victory, whatever victory type that may be. Yeah, so I agree with most of these points, but I do want to make one small little tweak to the phrasing. I wouldn't necessarily say that deity is too easy. I would say more that the problem is that deity forces you to play in very specific ways, and if you are very good at playing the game in those ways, then it does become very easy. For example, it often forces a lot more military action and things like that. So if you prefer to play the game more as like a you know, turtle building an economic empire, then you are going to have a lot of trouble. I agree as well that you get stuck in a playing in a certain specific way becomes routine and inflexible and boring. And then people just get bored of doing the same exact strategy each and every single time because they have to do it that way to beat the AI because all it has is bonuses. It doesn't know how to use the resources or functions in the game, which was also brought up about the emergencies. Because I remember in Civ 2, when I got too powerful, all the AIs would suddenly join forces to take me out and say, oh, you're too powerful. So all the AIs have banded together to fight you. But that emergency in Civ 6 is not the same functionality. It doesn't seem to work the same. I would definitely agree with you. The emergencies in Civ 6 seem to be a little bit more, I guess I'd call them piecemeal, where you never know exactly mm-hmm. who's going to jump in. And you don't know exactly when they're going to fire all the time. I mean, sometimes yeah. you're like, oh, took a capital, it's probably going to fire. But I think another issue is that it's the sort of idea of once you get the ball rolling, once you start snowballing, it's a little bit hard to figure out how to balance that, especially since they've gone away from the Civ 5 wide penalty, which was not really popular, but it did its job. It gave you something to struggle against as you grew, which I don't think is existing here in Civ 6 as much. Otherwise, in the thread, and it's kind of going back to, again, the same themes here, which regards to the artificial intelligence and its ability to play the game, to understand the game in order to play the game, and also a question of the approaches that you need to take on difficulty levels under the assumption that you are playing these higher difficulty levels because you are looking to win some formal type of victory condition. On the case of the AI, Traveling Canuck chimes in, It's okay from my perspective from the development team, so Fraxis Games, to wait until players figure out the best way to play the game before adjusting the AI strategy. Second, the game rules aren't finished yet and won't be until the final expansion is announced, so teaching the AI to play interim rules may not be worth the effort. What I wonder is, will the development team ever decide to teach the AI how to play the game so that it has a reasonable chance to win? Do they care about this and they're just not there yet? Or do they not care and will need to rely on unpaid volunteers to teach the AI to play? Unpaid volunteers, quote-unquote, I'm pretty sure is a not-so-subtle reference to the modding community. (laughs) This may be a dead horse comment, but the expansions should not be the fixing of a game. Those should be expansions. So the AI should know how to play right now, and then any expansions will just be expanding on what's already there, not fixing it. Agreed. Um, We should not be playing the game for two or three years or however long it takes for all the expansions to come out with a non-functional AI. I really that I would agree with Canuck on that one. Definitely not. Like, look at uh, Air Power. It still doesn't work. It's for second anniversary almost. 
I mean, to me, teaching the AI to play interim rules would be rules while the game is still in development and it hasn't been released yet, which could include, okay, teaching the AI to play, say, the interim rules of whatever expansion, if there's an expansion currently being designed. What it is that it's doing at that point may in fact be premature, but it's still something that, yes, you would want to put into the game, because if you're only teaching the AI to play the game two to three years out, then by the time Civilization VI is fait accompli, it's not like the expansions are going to change absolutely everything. So if the AI has some understanding of base mechanics, and then you go and modify those mechanics, then you can teach the AI to play to those modified mechanics, and you don't have to teach them from nothing. Right? There's a very big difference to saying, okay, there's one challenge when it says, I don't know how to prepare this food. There's another question when it's, I don't know how to turn the stove on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And trying to teach the AI how to turn the stove on after you have multiple dishes that can and should be made, and you want to be able to perhaps change what it is that you are doing with that food, depending upon the course of how the meal is progressing, you know, the food being your mechanics and the specific strategies and the meals, you know, the victory conditions, then that's asking the AI to try to do a lot. And that's asking a lot on the developers to try to be putting that together when they're trying to to make additions to the game rather than also trying to start from zero when we as the... Yes, exactly. Thank you, Doggy. When as we, as the players, are also trying to figure out... I'm sorry, how are we supposed to do this again? As for the deity comments, Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Uh, people <laughs> who play... <laughs> And yes, that was definitely required. People who play exclusively DD level often pride themselves on having a better understanding of the game and more of a wealth of experience than people who routinely play on low levels. But they, formerly I, don't have a better understanding of the game, but rather a better understanding of what the optimal choices and exploits are and have mastered how to get the most of them. This leads to a better understanding of one specific way of approaching the game. After winning four or five or six consecutive DD games, the game certainly wasn't fun anymore and I was just doing the same thing over and over. For me, playing creatively is more important than playing optimally, which is part of the reason I usually play around Emperor now, plus or minus one level. I believe that there's still more to explore in this game, and we're not going to find these revelations by playing the game at the highest level the same way every time. Yeah, I feel very much the same way. I play most of my games on Emperor as well. I've tried a few games on Immortal. I can play on Immortal if I someone like put a gun to my head and made me. Uh <laughs> But I don't enjoy it. I don't like the AI starting with the extra settlers and they're immediately forward settling you. And, you know, you have to do nothing but pump out units for like the first like 80 turns of the game. And so I typically like to prefer to play on the uh, Emperor difficulty just because I feel like it keeps more play styles and strategies viable, especially with regard to some of the civilization's unique abilities. You know, I like to be able to use my civilization's unique abilities when I'm playing as them. And when you're playing on immortal and deity like sometimes you just can't it's just not practical to do or it actually is harmful for you to deviate from those very specific routine steps in order to to utilize your uniques as a solidly middling player um <laughs> i would say definitely i will usually play on uh like king around there this was sort of this topic kind of surprised me. i was like oh i didn't think it was too hard i can't even get past you know emperor or something like that Every game has this part of the community, though, where there's the people who are the elite players that complain about it being too easy, no matter how hard the game actually is, or no matter how much the game might even cheat. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said, like, the way that the AI does get its bonuses. The way that it is a little bit sort of unsatisfactory with that sort of just flat production and gold and extra settler at the beginning, it's a little bit hard to sort of 
Uh, it's not it's not an increased difficulty that you relish. It's just sort of something that's there. I think when it comes to difficulty level, if the AI knew how to play the game right now, and this is setting aside, but the game shouldn't play this way, or the game has this deficiency. Well, if the AI knew how to play the game, and of course, how to play the game should be whatever the difficulty level happens to be, how good does the AI know how to play the game? How aggressive are they going to be in pursuing those active strategies? How well are they going to be able to react to a certain situation? So you could feel like when I'm moving up in difficulty level, it's not just a matter of having to micromanage very specific steps on the higher difficulty levels. I can still do what it is that I want to do, but I'm going to encounter that AI resistance. That resistance is whatever the AI is doing separate from me. Those things that it's doing within its empire before it meets me and after it meets me and it's still kind of off and doing its own thing, I'm not really challenging that. But as soon as I start challenging either directly through conflict or I'm challenging it through culture or tourism or science, that it's reacting in a way that I feel like, oh, it wouldn't have been as aggressive in responding in that way. There's more opportunity on the lower difficulty levels in order to recognize I should be doing something a little different as opposed to simply being, you know what, rather than figuring out how to manage your money better, we're just going to give you more money. And it's always been in civilization how they treat the difficulty levels of the AI. The AI is just spending its money. And on the higher difficulty levels, they just get more money up front and don't learn how to spend their money. The penalties that they get for not spending their money very well is considerably less. And I think that that's not a surprise that this is the case because developer Firaxis Games said this around the time Civilization IV came out, that they are not building an artificial intelligence to win. Which, when you're not building an artificial intelligence to win, and you've got the set victory conditions, then teaching the AI to play, and to play the game well, does not sound like it's a priority. And that, of course, is definitely open to debate and reconsideration. But knowing that, it would be nice that, rather than all of these front-loaded bonuses, that somehow the AI, if it doesn't play better, then it doesn't play as badly, and you don't (laughs) feel like the only reason that you're moving up in difficulty level is because you want to punish yourself because the AI is going to get things up front that you are not going to get. And I think that's what gets a lot of people questioning difficulty level, questioning that doesn't matter how many levels of difficulty, going back to the original post from A Clue Without doesn't matter how many difficulty levels you add. When the approach is this, you're just going to be getting more of the same. So perhaps it's a little bit on us as players, seeing as how these are the things that we can change, to find ways that we can play more creatively rather than optimally. We can find our own measures for how well we are doing in the game, like being the first to accomplish this or the first to accomplish that. Or dare I say it to the majority of people who play Civilization and don't play multiplayer, there are a number of multiplayer leagues that are out there. I would suggest looking into those. I mean, yes, you could just do the random matchmaking that you can go through the game, but that kind of seems like, you know, getting something for free with very little investment and, you know, you're going to get your return on investment or lack thereof. But find people that you can play with and you're going to eliminate... I think a lot of that, the opponent doesn't know what it's doing because you're playing with a human player who, well, even if they don't know how to play the game, they're probably going to learn from playing the game more in a multiplayer situation than they would in single player. If this is an issue for you, and if it's not an issue for you, then just continue doing what it is that you're doing and onward we go. One thing that I do want to point out is that I'm not really aware of 
too many, uh, actually, maybe not even any games where the difficulty actually, like, improves the AI's ability to play the game, like, its knowledge of the game. I think I've maybe heard of some games where on, like, really easy settings, like, the AI will deliberately make dumb moves. Like chess, um, maybe? Yeah, like, like in a computerized chess game or any computerized board game. But I, I'm not so sure that I've ever heard of games where they actually like teach the AI different rules to play by based on the difficulty setting. And one of the struggles that Firaxis would have with that is they'd have to do more between turn processing, which means that the turn times would probably balloon very rapidly and even more if you've got more sieves in the game. Now, personally, I wouldn't mind if they said that out front, like if there was like an option to say, okay, are you okay with having longer load times if it means the AI will go through some extra logic and potentially play better? I would probably enable that setting if it were available. But one of the other things that I think Firaxis could try that I don't think they've ever experimented with is maybe putting in place handicaps for the player instead of just giving handicaps to the AIs. So thinking something along the lines of, and I've, I've written and talked about this before on the show, of uh, something along the lines of a set of handicap sliders for both the human player and the, the AI player, similar to what you might see in a sports game. So you can custom tailor what elements of the game you're good at and what elements of the game you want to be more difficult. So say, for example, you're very good at powering through the tech tree. Well, maybe you can tune your tech tree progress lower and tune the AIs up or, or vice versa. Because one of the major frustrations that I have with the high difficulty settings is they also dramatically change the pace of the game. Because when you're playing on Emperor Above, you've got things like the AIs are hitting the Renaissance. I've seen as early as like 600 BC, which I would like to get rid of stuff like that. I would rather that I be slowed down on the higher difficulties rather than the AI being sped up so that the pace of the game still feels about the same as it should be. And I think in a situation like that, the player, in addition to having the control to set that, if they wanted to set the control, um, there could be you know, recommended settings and people could just say fine. But if you could tweak that for yourself, then as you said, you've got a measure of control. There's also a measure of challenge for yourself when you have control over the handicaps that you would be receiving and the AI is receiving. Right. There could still yeah. be set difficulty settings where it just sets all those handicap sliders at specific values based on the setting. And in fact, I think you can already pretty much do this by going to the INI files and adjusting a lot of the properties in there. So I don't see why Firaxis doesn't just expose those to the game settings UI when you are launching a game. I expect that's not happening in some respects because, and as people from Firaxis have said, including Sid Meier, like this is intended for mass consumption. And probably the reasonable perception is that the majority of players don't want such a thing. So why would we invest the time in presenting that? But if we as fanatics can send that message that, you know what, you can still gain new customers and keep older ones like us as well, then I think that would be advantageous. And seeing as how the game is about customization, this is a way to customize and have it be right within the game's user interface itself at setup as opposed to, like you're saying, Jason, you can already do it. It's just you have to know to go into the INI file and actually feel comfortable in doing that and making that. And you can do that, but it's it's cumbersome. And if you just kind of put that up front in the game, plus the game gives you some recommended settings, maybe you'd be able to save your configurations like, okay, here's what they consider to be a standard Emperor level, but this is the Emperor level difficulty that I want. Go ahead, save those settings. You can have your own INI files that you could save and load and swap out depending upon your mood and what challenge that you would like to have. 
I think that would, you know, allow it so that it's not so much worried about the AI playing the game as it is your playing the game with the AI because it's, it's it's something that would already be accessible to the player and something that we could control. And yeah, barring any major advancements in computing technology in the near future, we're still going to be better. We humans are still going to be better at adapting to particular circumstances than any AI is going to be, even if they had infinite number of time money to develop these things. Well, and it's still going to be bound by the programmer's ability to write good logic to play the game. You know, they can spend as long as they want processing, but if the logic behind the scenes is not very good, then it's still not going to lead to better results. And so the AI programming is still going to be the most difficult problem to solve. And there's no question that as the game goes on, as you're progressing through the game, there are more things that are happening on the map, more decisions that have to be made, more processing time, and the AI fumbles with that. And I think it's that combined with just how the game is set up in terms of it's really important to have that early land grab. And then once you've got that early land grab, it's like, hey, I've got oil. I've got all the oil I'm possibly going to need for my tanks. Why should I have to go out and settle something else, especially when it's going to... All that time and resources I'd be spending to go and settle that spot, no, that that doesn't make any sense. So I think if we combine all of this conversation with how the AI is designed to approach the game, the human's ability to interact with that, plus what the actual game mechanics themselves are, if all of these three things are done in tandem, then I think we can progress considerably what the experience of Civilization is, which is obviously still a pretty good experience because we're at the sixth mainline iteration of the game, and it's been more than a quarter of a century, and these games are still in development, so they must be doing something right. But just because we're doing something right doesn't mean it can't be better. I don't say it's on us, but I think we as fanatics are in the best position to make the best arguments for not only why you should do this, but also offer suggestions as to how. I mean, Fraxis and 2K would go ahead and release some of those DLLs and make it available to modders who can then translate it into English for the rest of us plebeians who play this game. Then we can offer even more detailed insight. And you know what? Our price is pretty good. We only would expect kudos and compliments. You don't have to actually pay us money. We're kind of an untapped resource, I think, in a lot of respects in that way. Although I think my favorite post from this thread just kind of intermixed with all the quote-unquote serious conversation, rightly so, Archon Wing. I lose games on Emperor. Don't tell anyone. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've lost a few games on Emperor myself. Oh, yeah. It happens. There was something interesting that I found in this discussion in the initial post, which brings up this idea of... Sorry, I just thought you were saying, after all what we just talked about, I actually found something interesting in this conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Please do enlighten us. Wait for Dan. You said something interesting. In the original post, they bring up the idea of to play these high levels, it's doing sort of thing really well, and that you, you do that one path. And they bring up this idea of they don't want to bring back this sort of, you know, random events like they had in Civ 4. And that's sort of an idea that I think it has merit, but I know it's very sort of polarizing. You either love sort of random events or you hate random events in a game like this. I was actually going to bring that up, too, because one of the advantages that having not necessarily random events, I, th- I think the randomness is what screws a lot of people up. I think if you designed it so that they are procedural events, right, mm-hmm. like things that happen for a reason, whether they're positive or negative, I think that's a lot easier for the players to digest and handle because there's consequences for your actions. You go back to uh, Civ 3 and Civ 4, you had things like pollution and global warming and stuff like that that were a direct result of you building dirty industry. You know, same thing in like a city builder game. You build too much industry, they create pollution, the pollution gets into your water, your people start getting sick, they start dying. 
a cause or that's an effect of something that you did. So I think if they can come up with things where they don't feel like it's just something that comes out of nowhere and is completely arbitrary, where there's a good reason for it to happen, then I think that could possibly be successful. And one of the advantages of having a system like that is that if you have random or procedural events that can throw a wrench into the player strategies, that can take a lot of the pressure off of the AI to play the game well, because there's other challenges and other hurdles that the player has to get over. The AIs might have to get over some of them too, but part of the difficulty setting could be that, oh, the AIs get fewer events that happen to them, or at least fewer negative ones, and maybe you get a little more, or vice versa. And that could take some of the pressure off of the AI to be good if you're actually playing against the board as well. Yeah, so sort of to borrow a term from a completely different vein of video games, to take some of the onus off of the PvP and put some on the PvE. Right, and I think Beyond Earth tried to go in that direction a little bit. The aliens and the miasma and stuff like that, I don't think it just quite went far enough that it didn't do too many interesting things for the entire duration of the game. It was still a very similar problem that Civ V and Civ VI had, which is once you get over that very early hurdle, all those front-loaded challenges, the rest of the game is smooth sailing. Yeah. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Now, Phil, there's still people. They're just dead people. It's debatable. At one point, when you break it down to its constituent parts, does it stop being the thing it originally was, Dan? Well, yes, it's no longer a live person. It's it's a dead person, and then it's parts of dead people if you break it down any further, but it's still well, Eventually, it's just atoms, and then not all atoms are people, <laughs> even atoms that were once part of people. They can become equal. They can become equally scattered atoms if you break them down in there. Yeah, it's deep. I know, yeah. Sometimes the coach would tell us in advance how many we were going to do, and I'd remind them that we're like 60% complete, and you'd have people like throwing expletives at me. It was fantastic. <laughs> Why does it not surprise me to filter all that? Yeah, even at a young age. <laughs> trolling, trolling, trolling. Oh, speaking of expletives, uh, Supremacy King 2, would you be willing to come back on the show? Yes. Yes, I would love to come back on the show. <laughs> d- d- oh, what, Dan? That... <laughs> Non sequitur for the win. Thank you. I mean, that was significantly better than several of our segment transitions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure being on this podcast. And uh, just introduce each of us uh, in turn, as well as yourself by uh, username. And just remind us of what uh, episode number this was of podcast. I know we've had so many, but I think we can find the number. Dan's going to do this to the end. Well, yeah. 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 So, this is probably just Polycast episode 325, and then reintroduce yourself 
and say something in goodbye, and then reintroduce each one of us with a pause, and uh, we will say something. And you may not like that something, but we will say something. Do it. Literally say something in goodbye, and that's it. Because <laughs> 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 we're all that trolley. Record date November 17th. 2018. I'll send him a fruit basket or something. What do you want, Dan? Well, that's pretty close to my gift basket there. I think that's a competing industry. I'm not certain I'm going to allow you to start that. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth sound clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.